0: Hi. I'm JP a Very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Alan and Ality. You know, it wasn't so long ago when somebody used to say that I'd go, ah. <laughs> but today I understand what it means. And I'm very lucky to to have a view of the Worldwide Fellowship. And that has really increased my awareness of, of why people feel that it's important to say that in their the introduction. So, it's a, new, it's a relatively new introduction for me, because I didn't use to introduce myself that way. Tonight, I'm going to tell you my story, and when I do that, it's a little bit embarrassing for me. Okay. See, if you're into sad Al-Anon stories, and if you're into people that have really been dragged through the pits, you ain't going to get it tonight. Okay? My life is good. In fact, when you hear how good my life is, if you say if my life was that good I wouldn't have to be here, that's okay because I held that position for 52 years. Okay? So if you feel that way tonight, uh, I understand it. Um, I only have one story to tell, so that's what I'm going to share. I'm going to talk to you... And I'm going to tell you that I do things. I don't do them all the time. I don't do anything perfectly. Uh, I don't do anything 100% consistently. I am a perfectly imperfect human being. And that the, that's the context in which to, to hear my story. Now, I worked for a major corporation for almost 30 years. And when we present it to the executives, we always had to do it in a three-part presentation. One, tell them what you're going to tell them. Two, tell them. Three, tell them what you told them. (laughs) Now, I know you go to meetings, and you're better listeners, but just out of force of habit, I'm going to stay with that, that, that scheme. And here's what I'm going to tell you about tonight. I'm going to talk to you about my family of origin and the drinking that occurred there. I'm going to talk to you about my, my life, the highlights and the lowlights, or as we say in our Alateen group, our happies and crappies. <laughs> um, I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you how to train a mule. We'll, we'll have a little discussion on training a mule. I'm going to tell you love stories. I want to share with you a couple of my favorite slogans, my favorite reading in the Al-Anon literature. I am going to share with you the steps that I use the most and the traditions that I use the most. And then I'm going to talk to you about my service experience and where it has taken me today. So with that, I begin with my family of origin. I'm the eighth of nine children. That lived. I'm actually the 10th of 11. My oldest two brothers died uh, before my oldest sister was was born. When I was born, I had five older sisters between the ages of 6 and 12. So there's five girls and then there's four boys. I have two older brothers and then myself and I have a, a younger brother. When I was born, dolls, did not cry, and laugh, and put their pants.
1: <laughs> and so I had
0: to fill those roles for my sister.
1: <laughs> and, that, and that was my
0: job for four and a half years. Um, so I was the baby. My next older brother was a year and a half older than I am, and he was a scrawny, whiny, don't hold me type of kid, I was the other way. I was a cuddly bear. And so I had all the attention you could ever want in your life. And having an older brother that way taught me that, you know, you can really look good if you stand by a bad example. (laughs) And I I often try to do that. Uh, My family loved me, loved to me, was water to a fish. It's just there. It's always there. And, and that's the way I was. Now, I will give you a little level set here to let you know that my siblings love me in different ways. Just before I turned four years old, we moved from one side of town to the other and we moved in right next to a railroad track. Actually, we moved in October. And the first night we were there, we had no lights because the people that moved out removed every light bulb from the house. So we had no lights. We were sitting there in the dark. And the train came by. And I remember this wonderful picture of the caboose and the lights on the back of the caboose as it as it went out of town. A very beautiful picture. By the next summer, whenever I heard the train because my brothers and sisters had convinced me it was going to get me unless I ran down the steps into the cellar, not a basement a cellar, (laughs) and wherever I was, I'd hear the train coming down the cellar steps I would go
1: (laughs) they would babysit
0: me, and when they babysit they would listen to the scariest radio shows you could imagine now TV can't do it to you, like what your imagination can do it. And I spent most of the time, they babysat with me, hiding under the kitchen table. So, yeah, they love me in their way.
1: (laughs) I also have
0: one recurring nightmare, and that is of being on a swinging bridge and having... Two siblings, one at each end, swinging that bridge. And in my dream, it's at least a thousand feet out of the water. I once saw that bridge, and it's about five feet out of the water. <laughs> and that was that occurred before we moved at three and a half. Okay. But I had that dream for many, many years. Um, we were a poor family. My father probably never made three thousand dollars a year. Now. Today's money, that's $30,000, $35,000. Take that and raise a family of nine kids. Uh, sometimes I was embarrassed and ashamed of that. Uh, didn't, have, didn't have all the nice things. Didn't scrub up like this very well, <laughs> you know, in those days. And I've bought my own clothes since I was 12 years old. Not as a punishment, but that was because of what was necessary. And, but it, it left me. And like I said, I, I would be a, ashamed of it at times. And, and that's where I was when I went into high school. And here's where high school, my freshman year in high school, was the first time I learned about training a mule. Okay. And you might have heard this story. It goes like this. Uh, A guy was trying to get his mule to move, and sitting there was a mule skinner. And the guy said, how do you get a mule to do what you want him to do? And the mule skinner says, you whisper in his ear. And so the guy goes and he whispers, let's go. The mule didn't do anything. He turns back to the skinner and says, what am I supposed to do? Whisper in his ear. The guy goes back, whispers in his ear. Mule does nothing. And he turns to the skinner one more time and the skinner says, here, I'll help you. And the mule skinner picks up a two-by-four, walks over that mule and just walks him on the head and then whispers in his ear, get up and move. And the mule got up and moved. Uh, my higher power uses that technique.
1: <laughs>
0: Every now and then, you know, the, mule skin, the, the guy says to the mule skinner, you know, that wasn't fair. You said to whisper in his ear, and he'd move. And that's the way you train him. And the guy says, yeah, that's right. But you have to get his attention, and that's what you do with the 2x4. Because after you get hit with the 2x4, then you can hear the whisper. And the first time that happened to me, I was a freshman in high school and I took this young lady out. And I thought we had a great time. And I called and asked her if she would like to go out again. And I got a real funny non-answer. And this went on for a while. And finally, I, I met her and I said, what's the problem? She said, I can't go out with you. You're the wrong religion. And that was the first time I personally was hit with prejudice. Not for what I had done. There's a lot of things you could have me for for what I've done. But don't have it for what I am. And I didn't like that. And it was a lesson that has stayed with me all my life. And today I have one prejudice. I'm prejudiced against prejudiced people. And that's where it has left me. when I was in high school, my sophomore year in high school, the religion I was in opened up a centralized school, and we were strongly encouraged to attend. My parents did not did more than encourage. They said, "You will go and and so I went. It was a little rinky dink town. you know my town was six thousand. this one was much, much smaller, so when I talk about rinky dink i I mean it. But I went there against my will. But I went there, and the best thing that that happened to me at that school is that uh, I met a young girl there, and um, we dated off and on. And eventually, um, well, economically we were at two different ends of the scale. Okay. I was a lower economic class and. She was in the lower upper economic class, and so we had very different, uh, very different economic experience. And so it took me a while to get to a position where I wanted her to invite her to my house, to the house where I lived, because I, would, I didn't know we had nothing fancy, nothing zip. Um, and, and I asked her, and eventually, and she came. And I didn't know what she was going to see. She did not see the material things. What she saw was the love that was in my family. Because that was different than what was in her family. It was a different experience. And so she saw what I had always taken for granted and had discounted And that was the first time that I really started to develop a sense of gratitude. That an understanding that I had something that not everybody had. And so that girl was very important to me because she helped me to understand gratitude. To begin to understand gratitude. Now, I told you I was going to talk to you about the drinking in my family. In my family... We have teetotalers, users, abusers, and alcoholics. Pretty much covers the range. Um, There were times in my life when I was a teetotaler. There was times in my life when I was a user. There was times in my life when I was an abuser. I don't have the disease, so I couldn't be an alcoholic. The pain and suffering that I caused within my family from drinking, I cannot blame on a disease, I can only blame it on my own stupidity. And if they ever start stupids anonymous, I'm going to be a charter member.
1: <laughs> because I
0: caused, I caused pain to my wife. I caused her to, to suffer and worry needlessly. And, uh, and I have to deal with it. Now, I thought that some of my siblings, for many years, I thought that some of my siblings were alcoholics until they, like me, quit drinking. And when they quit drinking, they just quit drinking. And so maybe they were just abusers like I was. The in-laws, on the other hand, were a different story. The first time I really lived with alcoholism, didn't know what, it, what to call it, is when I went to live a summer after my senior year with my, one of my sisters and her husband and their four kids. And the relationship there was crazy. It was crazy. It was irrational the way they treated each other. And I I couldn't understand it. I could not explain their behavior to each other. And of course I couldn't. There is no rational explanation for the insanity that we have in our families with the disease of alcoholism, and like I said, I didn't know it, but that's what was there. What I could do, though, was detach. As the eighth of nine children, okay, we were all encouraged to have an opinion. No one was required to care what it was, (laughs) especially of the little guy, (laughs) you know. And so I had opinions. It didn't really matter what it was and my idea of how to solve something wasn't going to be the the option taken okay and so what that did was it leave me a very natural detacher I can detach I was really good at detaching and so I went I, I lived with my sister and her family that summer, and I went back the summer after that. Now, the next thing I ran into, I went to college, and I ended up in a four-man dorm. And this was the odd quartet. One, one was a doctor's son from, from Chicago, very wealthy doctor's, doctor. Um, his monthly allowance was more than my parents gave me in four years of college. And he was always broke by the end of the week. Um, the The next was a jock. He was there on a full ride scholarship, football hero from out of the Chicago area. And then there was a fatherless kid who was as poor or worse than I was. Well, the doctor's son had never spent a day playing with his father ever. The jock was under enormous pressure to succeed, and the fatherless kid was running around angry. And so I saw in the jock and the uh, the doctor's son things that I thought I wanted, and these people had it, and it made it them no happier. And in fact, none of them were as happy as I was, and I had a father, and I had a father that cared and loved me, and And so it made a lot of difference to me. So that really became my second taste of gratitude. Um, I was starting to look at what I had instead of what I didn't have. And to me, that's what gratitude is all about, is to to want what you have. After college got married, we had four kids. We moved six times in the first 12 years. Couple of places. I, still, we live, I, I grew up in the Midwest, in Iowa. Then we, my wife and I, moved from there to to New York. A couple of places in New York. A couple of places in Chicago, Kansas City. and the in the sixth and final move to this point, was to Atlanta in 1975. Shortly after we moved to Atlanta, my wife's sister, Patty. Moved to Atlanta, and all of our our closest relatives were were in Iowa. So it was it was she and us were there. And my wife's sister was in the in the final stages of alcoholism, uh, and it is what brought my wife into Helena. And so my wife started to attend Helena Al- probably in 1977 or 78. Um, Patty was in poor shape. She really wasn't. She ended up dying on the streets of Atlanta. Even through that, I could detach. I could look at what happened and I was detached. And I remember thinking to myself, and I think I even said it out loud, Patty's pain is over. She's in a better place than she's been for many years. And I was able to detach, and <clears throat> it didn't. Uh, I cared. I loved her. She was one of my favorite sister-in-laws, but I could detach from it. So life was pretty still, pretty good, and we suffered through that. <clears throat> and so it was about time for the second mule lesson. And I was in September of 1982. My wife went into the hospital. And from September of 82 to January of 83, she was in the hospital for 50% of the days. She would be in, she'd be out, she'd be in, she'd be out. Early in January of 83, I think it was January 7th, she had an operation. And I was waiting in in her room, and the doctor called on the phone and said your wife has cancer of the pancreas. There's a 95% chance she'll be dead in 12 months. And that's the worst I've ever felt. I had four kids. The youngest one had turned 11 three days earlier. Um, I remember walking out of Northside Hospital crying. And all of a sudden I realized I had to stop. I had to stop walking because I had no idea where I was. And when I dried my eyes I found out I was standing in the middle of the driveway of the front entrance to Northside Hospital. I didn't accept her illness very well. If you could cure someone else by the strength of your will, if I could, I would have cured her. She would have been, she would have gotten better. But like many of us that face alcoholism, know we cannot cure somebody else by the strength of our will. It takes something else. At times, I couldn't comfort my wife. And surprisingly, the ones that could, we had have, we have neighborhood friends, we had church friends, but the ones that brought the most comfort to my wife were her friends from Alana. And so I got to know a lot of what I call first-name friends. You yeah. know, we, we have no last names. And so I got to know them, and I got, I got to see it and have some appreciation of why, why my wife kept going to the, uh, going to the meetings, that I could see what was there for her. And I struggled with this. I struggled with accepting this, and finally I quit struggling. And I accepted the reality that my wife had a short time to live. And I decided with that reality, what should I do? And I decided that if my wife had 12 months to live, that I wanted to be, I wanted every day of those 12 months to be the best possible day it could be for her. And after that struggle, and after that acceptance, and that surrender to God's plan, the diagnosis was changed. And it was said she did not have cancer of the pancreas. She had chronic pancreatitis, which is a disease associated with old male alcoholics. The closest she could come to that is through marriage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I never understood where it came from. Don't care. Don't know if it was a miracle or not. It's our miracle. Because she, I did not, I did not lose my wife. And you know, that left me then with a, with a, a dilemma. Okay, all of a sudden,
1: <laughs> my wife is going to live, right, <coughs> for more than
0: 12 months. Okay, what's the plan now? <laughs> Should I make her life miserable every two or three days, uh, once or twice a month?
1: It's a good plan.
0: It was a good plan then, and it's a good plan today. I wish I could say I carry it out perfectly, and I don't. And I don't. But I remember it, and I remember that that is the most important part of plan that I have for her today. And I wish I could carry it out as well as I was trying to carry it out then. And, and I do, but I just don't—I don't pull it off as well. And then that brings us to my son's alcoholism. He was came home from his after his freshman year in college. And I think that's really became apparent to us, that he was an alcoholic.
1: And the natural
0: detacher could not detach. The first time in my life, I could not detach. And I felt guilty because I drank too much. I felt frustrated because I couldn't cure it and I felt angry and I found that in trying to deal with this and I had read all the literature because the literature was in our house and I read just about anything when I sit down so I had read all the literature and I knew I was supposed to be treating him with loving care and I was trying real hard. And, of course, what that was doing was bottling my frustrations. And what that does is pop up someplace else. And so I was dealing so well with my son's alcoholism that I was yelling at my wife. If you're mad at one person and yell at another, that's my definition of insanity. And that's when I realized that I qualified for step two and I needed to get my rear end to meetings. And that's when I got into, that's when I got into Al-Anon. It's also when my son got into AA. He went into AA at the time that, that I went into Al-Anon. My higher power knows that I can be thick-headed, so it was time for Lesson Three in training the mule. When my son went into AA and I went into Al-Anon. I was diagnosed with cancer. You know, it was funny. When I was diagnosed with cancer, nobody said to me, if you loved me, you wouldn't have cancer. No one said to me, if you tried harder, you wouldn't have cancer. I had a disease, and I could not control it. And it helped me to understand that my son had a disease the same way. And he could no more control of and by himself than, than I could control my disease. And so it helped me to understand alcoholism as a disease and not a weakness of character. And that was critical for me. And it brings to me to my favorite reading, and this is the only thing I'm going to read out of the literature tonight, but it's my favorite reading because it helped me so much. This is March 14th, Encourage to Change. One beautiful day, a man sat down under a tree, not noticing it was full of pigeons. Shortly, the pigeons do what pigeons do best. The man shouted at the opinions as he stormed away, resenting the pigeons as well as the offending material. But then he realized that pigeons were merely doing what pigeons do just because they were pigeons and not because he was there. The man learned to check the trees for pigeons before sitting down. Active alcoholics are people who drink. They don't drink because of you or me, but because they are alcoholics. No matter what I do, I will not change this fact, not with guilt, shouting, begging, distracting, hiding money or bottles or keys, lying, threatening, or reasoning. I didn't cause alcoholism, I can't cure it, and I can't control it. I can continue to struggle or lose, or I could accept that I am powerless over alcohol and alcoholism and let Al-Anon help me to redirect the energy I've spent on fighting this disease into recovering from its effect. What this pointed out, what this reading points out to me is, My son's behavior was not a personal attack on me. Pigeons do what pigeons do because they're pigeons. Alcoholics do what alcoholics do because they're alcoholics. It's not personal. It's not personal. And it helped me to come to that understanding and it helped me to try to establish a better relationship with my son. However, this was my youngest son. Our oldest children had all moved away before this became apparent. So it was my wife and myself and my son, newly sober son, trying to live in this house. <coughs> and we had rules and he could follow them, but there was a lot of uh, abrasion, if you will, they were rubbing together. And I didn't know, and, and I said at the time, I can live with either one of you, but I can't live with both of you. And I think they probably felt at least that way, and, and maybe say, we could do it without you. Uh, but it was, it was a tension, you know, newly sober tension within our family and didn't know what to do. Well, my son got on the Internet, met a young lady over the Internet who lived in Boston, and he moved to Boston. And I saw this as my higher power having a plan for my son that I didn't know about. See, because in all the plans that I worked out, of how he could get better, Boston was never in the conversation, (laughs) okay? I could not see that as a solution. And it helps me to understand that just because I can't see a solution doesn't mean there isn't one, it just means I can't see it. And my, and my, my higher power found the solution, and my son moved to Boston. And sometime after that, we went to Boston to visit him. And, and he was living with this girl and this girl's family. They were, all, they were all living in the same house. And I observed it and I saw that my son had a better relationship with this girl's dad than he did with me. And that caused me to do a lot of soul searching. And when I came to understand it, <coughs> What I came to understand is he accepted my son just as he was. Not as he should be, not as he could be, not as I would like him to be, but as he was. And because he accepted them, they could have a good relationship. And it helped me to try to pursue that that same goal. Uh, today, it's over 15 years that he's been sober. And it's over 15 years that I've been in the program. Uh, he's really trying. And this kid that used to have two or three jobs per quarter, which he would either get quit or get fired from, has been in the same job for over 10 years, maybe over 12 years. So he's made a tremendous amount of progress you know, and I'm very proud of him. I'm very proud of him. And I try to accept him just the way he is. Um, his life is not easy, but he's dealing with it. And today we have a better relationship. He and I have a better relationship than we than we've ever had before. So that's where we are today. And I'll just take a minute to talk about a couple of slogans that I like and one I created went to a Al-Anon workshop and the thing was create a bookmark that has your favorite slogans on it okay and I put two of them on there attitude of gratitude live and let live an attitude of gratitude is one that has been at work in my life for a long time and I have, do an exercise of naming 10 things that I'm grateful for before I leave my bedroom in the morning. <coughs> okay. And I can be thankful for things like covers, bed, a ceiling over my head, carpet, heat, an inside bathroom, because I forgot to tell you, with the nine kids, we had one bathroom, we had six outside ones, uh, because we happened to live next to a country school. Uh, <laughs> I'm grateful for electricity, water, hot water, shower, and I'm grateful for my life. This last Tuesday, I went and played poker at a friend's house. This friend is paralyzed from the neck down, has been for over 10 years. And the poker game once a month occurs at his house because it's the highlight of his month. And today, my gratitude extends. I can move my finger. I can move my finger. I can move my hand. I can move my arm. I can move my feet. I walked into this room by myself. My friend cannot do any of that. He controls his wheelchair by hitting the back of it with his hand. He runs his PC through voice recognition. And so today, I am grateful to be I am just grateful to be uh, so that's my attitude of gratitude live and let live if you notice I have explanation marks after live I'm not into existing I want to live I want to enjoy life I want to have enthusiasm for it and sometimes I turn it around and say let live and live because I have to let others live to have enough time for me to live. If I have to take care of you all the time, I don't have enough time for me. So I let live and live. Okay, um, the steps that I like the most, step one. The so step one to me is all about acceptance. If I really admit that I am powerless over everything and everyone, my only choice is to accept what is and who you are. If I do that, I am living in reality and have nothing to be upset about. I get upset when I judge that you are not doing what I think you should do. Okay. If I say should... I'm not accepting where you are. So my job is to accept. Now, sometimes when I say this, we get into the discussion about accepting unacceptable behavior. You don't have to accept unacceptable behavior. You have to accept the reality that the behavior is unacceptable. And if the behavior is unacceptable, what are you going to do? What am I going to do in my life to deal with the fact that I am living with unacceptable behavior? I have to accept that reality and then I can move forward. So that's what I have to accept in those situations and then I have to make my decisions based on that. I didn't tell you I was going to tell you but my least favorite step is step four.
1: <laughs>
0: and this is just giving encouragement to people that are... Having difficulty was step four. I was on the fast track. I got it done in five years.
1: <laughs> now, part of this
0: was because my wife had been in the program almost 15 years at that time, so I had to live in sponsor.
1: <laughs> but
0: then <clears throat> I read step five, and if I did step four, I had to go to step five and somebody pointed this out to me in a meeting, the reason you couldn't do step four is because you're afraid of step five. And she was exactly right. Dang that woman. She was right. Because I wasn't going to do a step five with somebody that could say, wait, you forgot this? (coughs) How could you overlook this? And she would have been right. That would be the part that would kill me. So that's my least favorite step. But I did get through it. And that's when I got a sponsor, an outside sponsor, Uh, so that I have somebody to do step five with. Um, The step today that, that controls my life is step 11. I read that step a thousand times, or heard it read a thousand times, before I really heard that it says, praying only for knowledge of his will for us. It does not say understanding. Okay? I only have to know what to do, I don't have to know why, and today I try to live my life based on what my higher power wants me to do, and so I take the next step, and if I take the next step, it's surprising, my higher power always comes through with the power to carry out that next step. See, If I have to have an understanding, then I really didn't do step three. See, I didn't turn it over if I have to understand because really what I'm saying in step three if I have to understand is, God, I'll give you you this and let you do it as long as I agree with you. Knowledge does not require that. Turning it over completely does not require understanding, only knowledge. Tradition one is one of my favorite traditions. When a relationship When the relationship is more important than any one person within that relationship, the relationship thrives. If I make myself more important than the relationship, the relationship loses. The only way in a relationship with another person, the only time the relationship wins is if both of the people win. If they both lose, the relationship loses. If I win and you lose, the relationship loses. If you win and I lose, the relationship. It has to be win-win in a relationship. And that's what Tradition 1 is all about. Tradition 2 teaches me to listen and to speak. I need... But when I speak, I need to be sure that how I am saying something sounds like it might be the expression of a loving God. If it doesn't sound like it's an expression of a loving God, I am probably into control and I should keep my mouth shut. Because that's what Tradition 2 tells us, occurs in our group conscience, is the expression of a loving God. Now let me tell you about my service journey. First of all, let me position service in Al-Anon. The most important and fundamental service that we can do in Al-Anon is go to a meeting and sit there and listen and talk and share our experience, strength, and hope. The foundation of the program is based on that service, which we provide to each other by going to meetings. That's the fundamental. So who does service in Al-Anon? Every one of you here does service in Al-Anon. You're doing service in Al-Anon by being here. So all service starts from there. And that's where I started. I attended meetings, I contribute financially, I participate in discussions, I chair meetings, I led meeting discussions, I was a treasurer, I told my story. Which is, which is interesting because it helps us to accept ourselves. I sponsored others. And this is the greatest way to learn about the program in real depth is to try to explain it to somebody else. Uh, and it also gives you the chance to feel the joy of unconditional love. Sponsorship is critical uh, not only to the sponsee, sponsorship. Is critical to the sponsor and if you haven't done it you've been in the program for a few years try to get positioned where somebody will ask you to be a sponsor now the rest of this is going to show you how the my higher power works in my life and in step 11 I started to go to the area assembly because our district was doing the hospitality room and wouldn't it be really nice if somebody could come there and work on the hospitality room that didn't have to go to the meetings? You know, so you could you, I could sit and, and, and get the uh, stuff all laid out while, while the GRs were in the meeting and that. So I ended up going to assembly for the next seven years. <laughs> I became the group rep and my wife was the district rep, and so that was a that was a nice relationship.
1: <laughs>
0: and we had we had one Alatine meeting in our district, and the Alatine sponsor was burnt out. And there was this person that wanted to be an Alatine meeting uh, wanted to be the Alatine sponsor, and the Alatine. Coordinator for the district and and my wife, as a DR, were not comfortable with, and and asked that that I meet in a that I attend a meeting where they were going to meet with this individual and talk to him. When we met with him, the meeting did not go well. In fact, before it was over, he ended up threatening us. Okay. And at that time, because there's no Alateen requirements, if he had wanted to be an Alateen sponsor, we couldn't have stopped him. He chose to withdraw from consideration. Of course, he was the only candidate. So when he withdrew, we had no sponsor for the Alateen group. So I became the sponsor for the Alateen group. Because it was the next right thing for me to do. And the being an Alanon sponsor is, bar none, the best job in Alanon. Best job in, in Alanon. Uh, it was a struggle to get it going. Today, I have four co-sponsors. And I should correct what I said. The best job in Alanon is not to be a sponsor. The best job in Alanon is to be a co-sponsor. Have somebody with you. Have somebody that can share it with you. And today, there are five of us, that, actually, we just went up to six. We have six of us that share the sponsorship of that meeting, and nobody gets burned out. We have a lot of teams that come and go. And, you know, they come to the program one or two times, and they don't come back. And that's okay. You see, my job as an teen sponsor is to plant seeds. Whether those seeds grow or not, or when they grow, or when the person blooms, is not mine. That's my higher power. All I have to do is, is plant the seed. And in all of that, as in all forms of sponsorship, I get more out of it than I put into it. Now, I was, I was at GR when the board of trustees passed the Alateen Uh, minimum allotine safety requirements. And this was in my obnoxious days as a GR. And so at the assembly where it first came up that there was going to be a, that there was going to be an ad hoc committee to address this and decide what the area was going to do. I stood up and made a motion about how the committee should report back to the assembly. And it got passed. Well, the alternate delegate at the time got put in charge of that committee and he picks up the phone and he calls me and says, I'd like you to be on the committee. (coughs) So I went and I was on that committee and and, uh, we did the work and I had to go back to that assembly and do the committee report and present it in the way that was by that damn motion I
1: made.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You really got to be careful in this program because (laughs) things just things just always come back to you and so that's that's when I became involved with Alateen at the area level and I became the district rep and the alternate delegate became the delegate, and asked me to be the area Alateen coordinator and that opened up a whole new thing I I got to meet sponsors from all over the state I got to meet the kids from all over the state and that was, that was just a tremendous experience. I got to go to the Alateen conference. If you want to have a lot of fun and no sleep, 48 hours,
1: <laughs>
0: go to an Alateen conference. It is, it is phenomenal. It cost me two cell phones, one each year. Uh, I forgot I had a cell phone in my back pocket when the kids dumped a tub of water over my back. And that doesn't help one. And then the next year we went swimming and I had it in my swimsuit pocket. So I'm I'm all for two on this on that. Um, how the devil did I get to be trustee? Well, my wife and I were driving home from the 2000 September 2008 uh, <coughs> assembly, and September 2009 would be where new assembly officers would be elected. And my wife said, "What are you going to stand for?" what, if anything, are you going to stand for in 2009? And I said, I don't know, I'm going to have to pray about it. And so I prayed about it. And what I, what I came to through that, through that prayer was if someone that I respected asked me to stand for a position, I would stand for it. And I went to the January Assembly in 2009, and the delegate came up to me and said, We have not had a regional trustee for two years. They are going to fill the regional trustee position for one year to complete that term. Would you submit a resume? I had asked my God for a sign, a specific sign. He gave me the specific sign. It didn't read the way I expected it to read. But it was exactly the sign that I wanted. So I I filled in the assembly, I filled in the resume. Uh, We had a vote at assembly, and the assembly uh, submitted my name as a candidate to be the regional trustee. And whether you got to be regional trustee or not was gonna be determined in April, the third weekend in April the next Area World Service Committee meeting was the third weekend in April. To submit resumes for the next full three-year term had to be approved by the Area World Service Committee that third weekend in April. So whether I was going to be selected as a trustee or not was not known, and my higher power loves me so much that he knows I have a problem with pride. So I was not selected by the Area World Service Committee to be the candidate for the full term. Just so I would keep my humility in place, I thought. Now, I was elected to complete that term. And so I, for one year, I am the Southeast Regional Trustee until April. Now I've liked it so much that I put in my I put in my resume resume for trustee at large. And a trustee at large I have been selected and as long as the April World Service Conference approves me I'll have a complete 3-year term as a trustee at large. The difference between a regional trustee and a trustee at large is only the selection process. Once you are a trustee You are responsible for all of Al-Anon. I do not vote for the good of the Southeast region. I vote for the good of Al-Anon, as does every other Al-Anon trustee. It has been the most phenomenal experience, one of the most phenomenal experiences in my life. There are 19 of us. There's nine regional trustees, nine trustees at large, and there's the executive director. The executive director is a trustee. It's a humbling experience for me because I thought I knew Alanon pretty good. I don't know squat <laughs> compared to the other members of that board of trustees. And it's been a tremendous experience understanding what a group conscience can be if we all presume that the other person has goodwill and wants only the best of Alanon. That that is their only motivation is the best of Alanon. And I hear that. I hear that at every board meeting and every decision within the board meeting. And that's just a phenomenal experience. You do hit the ground running. The first thing I got as a trustee was a list of committee assignments. The first committee is the Alateen Advisory Committee, and I was on it, which didn't surprise me. I was the chair of it, which really surprised me. (laughs) So that's that's the way we hit the ground running, and we we work it. And um, it's a wonderful experience. And I stand here as an example. If I can get elected, so can you, if you want to. If you want to, you probably should become a DR. You want to have been a DR. It's not explicitly stated, but for all practical purposes, you have to be a DR, have to have been a DR, and you have to have had some some level of service at the area level, which makes sense. You know, I should at least address the problems in my state before I try to address the problems in the entire World Service Conference. But you can do it. And the surprising thing is, Alamnod does not get 100 resumes for all these positions. We get very few. So we encourage people that have an interest and have the time, because it's the time, to think about submitting it. Regional trustees have to be selected through their areas. Trustees at large can submit their resume directly to, to the World Service Office. It is a fantastic experience. It has, it has taken me places that I'd never went, but that's always what service is. Service, service takes me places I didn't know that I would ever be. And with that, I'm gonna start closing and I'm gonna tell you what I told you, okay? I think it told you love stories. My family of origin loved me. My wife loves me, and I'll just digress for a minute to talk about a card that's not Conference of Ruth literature, but it's part of my experience, Strict novel. <clears throat> my wife gave me a card one day, and on the outside it says, I love you more today than I loved you yesterday. And the inside of the card said, yesterday you really pissed me off (laughs) that card has made iterations back and forth and unfortunately I I hope soon to get that card because I know I really pissed her off lately and and, in something that I can't even defend so uh, I'm I'm hoping to get it again but my wife loves me and I know that my children love me my grandchildren love me and I love all my children And in a very special way, I love my alcoholic sons. They brought me into the program. I hope I've told you about the love that exists in Alma. But through it all, the real love story is what my higher power, how my higher power loves me. Even when I wasn't paying attention, my higher power was getting me exactly where I needed to be. And that's that's the most wonderful love story of my life, is that my higher power loves me. And I know that today. There have been times in the past when I was irritated with my higher power, and he wasn't doing a very good job. And today I look back at those and say, Oh yeah, that's when I was doing things my way and blaming God for the results. Okay? I don't try to do it my way anymore, and I don't have to blame God for the results. I learn from the whispers of my higher power once he gets my attention. The slogans and the steps and the traditions are important in my life, as are the concepts, but I wasn't, I've taken plenty of time to you right now. Now, I forgot to tell you, I'm smart and I'm lucky. You remember that girl I talked about in high school that helped me to have an understanding of what gratitude is? See, I was smart enough to ask her to marry me. And I was lucky enough that she said yes. And 46 years later, it's the best damn decision I've ever made in my life. And, uh, and it's very special to me. I thank you for listening. Like all of our, me- our meetings,
1: take